listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. The sons of the priests Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. Then the priests shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thanks for that reading, Lord. You nailed it on the entrails. That was good. Oh, man. So here we are. The gospel according to Leviticus. I should say, there's a a right way to say the title of this series. It's not the gospel according to Leviticus. It's the gospel according to Leviticus. Leviticus? Like that's that's kind of that's how I that's how I envision this. Um, quick bo- quick poll of the congregation before we dive into this. How many of us, when you hear the word Leviticus, it means nothing to you? Like yeah, like you don't you don't know much about it. You're maybe not as familiar with the Old Testament. It's like Leviticus. I think I've heard of that. All right, that's that's a few of us. And then how many of us, um, when you hear the word Leviticus, it just fills you with dread? <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like, oh no, not Leviticus. Dan has lost his mind, finally. How many of us are in that camp? That was like most of us, yeah. Excellent. So as you probably guessed, we're starting a new teaching series today on the book of Leviticus, the third book of the Bible. It's going to take us through the summer, and I promise it's going to be fun. Um, let's talk about Leviticus a little bit. Um, it's part of the Old Testament law, the Torah. In fact, it's like the centerpiece of the Torah. And Leviticus is basically an ancient handbook for priests. This is the book that told ancient Israelite priests how to do their job, how to carry out their work in the temple. And that makes this one of the hardest, most challenging books in the Bible for us to read and understand. Who here has ever heard of the Levitical wall? Is anyone familiar with this phrase, a few of us? Okay, the Levitical wall. If you haven't heard it, that's okay, but I guarantee if you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through, you have run into the Levitical wall at some point. Um, If you're reading the Bible, it starts off pretty good with the book of Genesis, right? There's like 
Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, a lot of, um, a lot of stories that we know and remember from Sunday school. There's, there's also a lot of violence in Genesis, so it's a pretty entertaining read, a little, um, you know, a little Game of Thrones-ish. Then you get to the book of Exodus, which is about Moses, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Plagues. There's a river of blood. It's another, like, entertaining, solid read. But then if you make it through Genesis and you make it through Exodus, that's when you run into the Levitical wall. The book of Leviticus, which begins with seven chapters on animal sacrifices. You heard some of it like a minute ago. We're talking like detailed step-by-step instructions. Here's where you take your animal. Here's how to kill the animal. Here's what you do with the blood. Here's how you, you know, cut it up and, and all of that. For seven chapters, that's the Levitical wall. I know for me uh, personally, I have attempted to read the entire Bible through probably 20 times. Um, I've only succeeded maybe four times. And all those times I didn't make it through, it's because I hit the Levitical wall. Who's with me on that? Has anyone else had that experience? Yes, you've, you've tasted this. <sighs> if the Bible is old and outdated and hard to understand, if the Bible is sexist and violent and irrelevant and all the worst stuff you've heard about Scripture, if that's true, then the book of Leviticus is by far the worst offender. Leviticus is a book that even most Christians won't touch. I've been in the church my whole life, and I've never heard a sermon on Leviticus. I've never seen a Bible study or a small group working on Leviticus. I've never even seen a class like at a Bible college teaching the book of Leviticus. But we've all been studying the Bible together, you and and me all here at this church, you all and me, sorry, flip that. We've been reading the Bible together for like three years now, right? And we've read some of the Gospels, Genesis, Psalms, Romans, Daniel, and like time after time we discover that these strange, foreign, seemingly backwards at times books have all sorts of new wisdom and guidance for us today. If we could do that with Leviticus, if we could explore this book and discover that even Leviticus has some good news for us, then there just might be something to this whole Bible thing after all. The biggest problem with the book of Leviticus, as we're thinking about this, is that it's old. It's not the blood or the animals or all that other weird stuff. It's the fact that this book is really old. It's really foreign. This book preserves a view of the world that's nearly 3,500 years in our past. That's an old book. We don't think like this anymore. But not everything that's old is bad. Amen? Yeah, amen. I knew that would get an amen. Not everything that's old is outdated or irrelevant. Um, I, w- I want to I show you an example. This is, things are going to get unruly in this series, I can already tell. It's a good thing it's, it's, a, it's a holiday weekend, because if there were like twice as many of you, it would be too much. Um, here's an example. This is an old line that I think still has some power behind it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a pretty old line. How many of us have heard, love your neighbor as yourself? Yeah. Who said this? Shout it out. Jesus, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. A story in the Gospels where Jesus has asked for like the greatest commandment and he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus. But where did he get it? 
Where did Jesus take this from? Love your neighbor as yourself. Some people said God. This is from Leviticus. This is Leviticus 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus was quoting Leviticus. Here's another example. Um, Way back in 2006, which I realized this week was 15 years ago, if you can believe it, um, at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2006, Bono, from the band U2, gave this incredible speech. If you haven't seen this, you should Google it. It's on YouTube. Just search for, like, Bono Prayer Breakfast. You'll find it. But Bono gave this speech where he called on then-President Bush to erase third-world debt, to just take billions of dollars of debt in, like, Africa and Latin America and just wipe it out, declare a global jubilee. And unlike most instances where rock stars get political, this one actually made a difference. Uh, Over the course of his two terms in office, regardless of what else you might think about those two terms that George W. Bush had in office, which we're not going to talk about, but over the course of those eight years, um, President Bush massively increased U.S. aid to Africa, taking on the AIDS crisis and malaria. And President Bush and Bono, which there's a pairing, (laughs) their partnership was instrumental in getting the wealthiest countries of the world to eliminate, to write off more than 50% of developing world debt. Billions of dollars just gone, forgiven. Where did Bono get the idea for Jubilee? You see, you're you're picking it up now. It's not not as fun when you know the answer. Yeah, um, this radical notion of debt forgiveness on like a societal scale, that's from Leviticus 25. Bono actually quotes it at the beginning of his speech from the prayer breakfast. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself, you shall maintain him. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit. Bono got the idea from Leviticus. So debt forgiveness, care for the poor, justice, all these biblical gospel principles that we still talk about today, almost all of them find their origins right here in the book of Leviticus. So let's talk about Leviticus, if we can. If you peel back all the layers of Leviticus at its core, this book is grappling with three big questions, and I'm going to give them to you right up front. You can write these down if you want. The three big questions of Leviticus are, how do we relate to God? How do we relate to our neighbors, to others? And how does the act of worshiping together transform us? How do we relate to God? How do we relate to others? And how does worship transform us? See, there's a context for this book. That's what's often missed in Leviticus. There is a context for this obscure priestly manual. We've been studying the book of Daniel for about 12, 13 weeks now. That's kind of what we're coming off of. And at a couple points in the Daniel series, we looked at this chart, um, which represents kind of the history of God's people in the Old Testament. And uh, for a long time, we have been here at the far end in exile. We've been looking at the end of the story, Daniel and his friends uh, as refugees in Babylon. But Leviticus takes place at the other end, here, at the beginning of the story. 
The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. That's four centuries without agency. Four centuries of having every decision made for you by the Egyptians, an existence that centered on building bricks for Pharaoh, where your value, your worth, depended not on your shared humanity or your connection to God, but on how much you could produce. Four centuries of being forgotten by the gods. Moses has just led the Israelites out of Egypt. They've just crossed the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, and they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, this mountain, where God gives them a book, this priestly manual. It kind of makes sense if you think about the context. The Israelites have to learn how to be human again. They need to learn how to relate to God. What What does it mean to be God's people, to represent God in the world? How do we operate in God's presence? How do we interact with this mysterious, dangerous, divine being who just wrecked the Egyptians? They need to learn how to do community again. How to be a good neighbor. Uh, What does it look like? How do we relate to each other? How do we make decisions now that Egypt's not making them for us? How do we keep those with power from abusing that power and make sure that everyone has enough? For so long, our existence has been based on survival, on just getting through to the next day. What does it look like to have healthy community again? Are we still talking about Israel, or are we talking about us? How do we relate to God? How do we relate to others? And how can worshiping together transform us? Let's move out of Israel for a second and talk about us, talk about now. And let's start with this first one. How do we relate to God? Who is God? You don't have to answer. You can think about it. There was a time, like not too long ago, when if you talked about God, everyone had the pretty much the same idea what you meant. There was this like vaguely Christian notion of who God was. Um, America's never really been like a Christian country, certainly not in our actions. But there was a time when most Americans, most people you'd meet on the street were operating with basically a Christian view of God. They probably grew up in church. They maybe even belonged to one. There was a point in the not too distant past when like even atheists, the God they were rejecting was the Christian God, right? That time is gone, if you haven't noticed. The fastest growing religion, religious affiliation today, is none. N-O-N-E, no religion. Uh, Most kids today, most members of Generation Z, which is the generation after millennials, so you can't blame us anymore. Um, Like the Tide Pod generation, if you remember that fun little trend. Um, Most members of of Gen Z, age 24 and under, are being raised with no religious background at all. God? What's God? Who's God? The God of those folks on the street corner telling people they're going to hell? The God of terrorists who fly airplanes into buildings? 
The God of the televangelists who promise that if you send enough money, they'll make you rich? Which God are we talking about? You know, after 400 years enslaved to the Egyptians, I bet the Israelites had no idea who God was either. God? I've heard about God. My grandmother used to tell me about God. Our people have been crying out to God for 400 years. If there is a God, he's probably long since forgotten about us. Do you guys remember the burning bush story from Exodus? When God appears to Moses and tells him to liberate the Israelites, let my people go, that whole thing. What's, what's one of the first questions Moses asks God? Do you remember from that story? Who are you? What's your name? It's like he doesn't know. If I tell the Israelites that God sent me, they're not going to know what I'm talking about. We've come full circle. We're right back where we started, a world where most people we interact with every day, and even many of us, if we're honest, aren't quite sure who God is and have no clue how to interact with God. What about our neighbors? How do we relate to our neighbors, to others? Love your neighbor as yourself. How are we doing on that one? How's that working out for us? Have we like nailed that yet? Not even close, right? No. We're more divided than ever. Polarized. Families are being torn apart. Everything is a fight. Everything is a battle. Um, Even things like masks and vaccines are something that we fight over now. We put a sign on the, on the church sign out front a week or two ago uh, asking to pray for peace in the Holy Land, and people on Facebook are calling us liberal. It's like, what? We don't just have like, different opinions anymore. We have different realities, different facts, different worldviews that are reinforced by these echo chambers on social media and cable news that tell us to distrust and even hate anyone who looks thinks or acts differently from us. We are not loving our neighbors as ourselves. And I know I've been guilty of that as well. But the brilliance of this book, the brilliance of Leviticus, is realizing that these two things, how we relate to God and how we relate to our neighbors, are connected. If we don't have peace with our neighbors, if we're not at peace with each other, if we aren't in right relationship with human beings who we can see, then we are never going to live in right relationship with God. But at the same time, if we seek right relationship with God, if we dedicate ourselves to living at peace with God, in harmony with God's creation and our fellow creatures, that is going to drive us to seek peace with our neighbors. How we relate to God and how we relate to others is connected and they come together in worship. How does the act of worship transform us? There's a lot of good reasons people come to worship. Uh, Maybe you like the music or the teaching. Maybe you're here to see friends or to ask for prayer. Um, Some of us are here because we're searching for something, something that we aren't quite sure what it is. 
And let's face it, some of us are here out of habit. That's fine, too. There's a lot of good, legitimate reasons people come to worship. But the big picture, ultimate reason that we come together every week is to be transformed. To be made into a new kind of people, a Christ-centered people, a God-oriented people. You want to learn how to love your neighbor? Sit next to them in a church pew every week. Hear their stories. Listen to them. Ask how you can pray for them. It is pretty hard to hate someone you're praying for. Sociologists have actually studied this. Uh, Human beings, like other mammals, we form a bond with the creatures we're around most often. That's why my mom didn't want me hanging out at punk shows as a kid. Clearly didn't work. Um, (laughs) Sorry. But if you spend your time on message boards reading conspiracy theories, you're going to believe in conspiracy theories. If you spend your time consuming media that reinforces all your biases, you're going to get more and more entrenched. If you hang out with fearful, angry people, you are going to become fearful and angry. That's how it works. That's how we're designed. We're mammals. But when we worship together, ideally, all that divides us is stripped away. It doesn't always work that way. But look around at your fellow churchgoers for a moment. Just kind of look around at the people in the pews. We have Democrats here, and we have Republicans. I know because I've gotten angry emails from both of you. (laughs) Uh, We've got got, um, more experienced folks here, and we've got younger people, right? Boomers and millennials. It's a miracle. (laughs) Um, We've got rich people and poor people. We've got um, activists and police officers. We've got lifelong Christians and folks who aren't sure if they believe any of it. You're all here to worship together. That's a miracle. That will start to change you if you let it. And of course, the way we relate to others is connected to the way we relate to God. So if we hang out with God enough, if we engage in worship, if we uh, encounter God regularly in authentic ways, that's going to transform us. The Israelites weren't sure who God was. They didn't know his name. They had good reason not to trust God, so God put up a tent and moved into the neighborhood. Before the temple was built, uh, when the Israelites were living in the desert as nomads, they worshipped at the tabernacle. It was also known as the tent of meeting. Basically a huge tent in the middle of the camp where God lived. That was the idea. And most of the instructions in Leviticus are about how to safely enter the tent of meeting. Here's what you do. Here's how you present yourself. Here's how to stay clean. Here's how you can live in God's presence without fear. And about a millennium and a half, 1,500 years, if I count that right, um, after the time of Moses, there was a follower of Jesus named John who wrote an account of the life of Christ that starts out like this. You might recognize some of this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. How many of us have heard this before? Probably a lot of us. Awesome. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people didn't accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God. Born not of blood or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Now that word there toward the end, dwelled. Literal translation is tabernacled. Pitched a tent. God took on flesh and lived among us. We were in darkness, we were far from God, so God moved into the neighborhood. John is drawing on Leviticus. God dwells among us. Can I get an amen to that? Yes. God journeys with us, God desires to encounter us, and when we engage in worship, we are attuning our senses to that encounter. That's the gospel according to Leviticus. In the going deeper section of your bulletins, which I don't have mine, it's over there somewhere, um, but there's some questions I want you to take a look at this week. Questions about where you're at right now in your connection to God, to others, and to worship. And I know we're heading into the summer. I know this stuff is probably not top of mind, but we are coming out of a really tough season. I think the pandemic made a lot of people rethink a lot of things. So what better time than now to reflect on some of this stuff? Let's pray. God, it's been a really long year and a half. As we move out of the pandemic, we have to relearn how to be human. We have to relearn how to do community how to be a church, how to worship and do life together. So God, as we move forward into the future that you have set out for us, we pray that you would transform us into a new kind of people. Use our time of worship together each and every week to form us into a people who are shaped by your love, and who carry that love with us into the community. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website brockportfirstbaptist.org Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.